1 Corinthians chapter 7, beginning in verse 25. Now concerning virgins, I have no commandment from the Lord, yet I give judgment as one whom the Lord in his mercy has made trustworthy. I suppose, therefore, that this is good because of the present distress, that it is good for a man to remain as he is. Are you bound to a wife? Do not seek to be loosed. Are you loosed from a wife? Do not seek a wife. But even if you do marry, you have not sinned. And if a virgin marries, she has not sinned. Nevertheless, such will have trouble in the flesh, but I would spare you. But this I say, brethren, the time is short, so that from now on, even those who have wives should be as though they had none. Those who weep as though they did not weep. Those who rejoice as though they did not rejoice. Those who buy as though they did not possess. And those who use this world as not misusing it. For the form of this world is passing away. But I want you to be without care. He who is unmarried cares for the things of the Lord. How he may please the Lord. But he who is married cares about the things of the world. How he may please his wife. There is a difference between a wife and a virgin. The unmarried woman cares about the things of the Lord, that she may be holy both in body and in spirit. But she who is married carries, cares about the things of the world, how she may please her husband. And this I say for your own profit, not that I may put a leash on you, but for what is proper, and that you may serve the Lord without distraction. But if any man thinks he is behaving improperly toward his virgin, if she is past the flower of youth, and thus it must be, let him do what he wishes. He does not sin, let them marry. Nevertheless, he who stands steadfast in his heart, having no necessity, but has power over his own will, and has so determined in his heart that he will keep his virgin, does well. So then, he who gives her in marriage does well, but he who does not give her in marriage does better. A wife is bound by law as long as her husband lives. But if her husband dies, she is at liberty to be married to whom she wishes only in the Lord. But she is happier if she remains as she is, according to my judgment, and I think I also have the Spirit of God. There is a sentiment in some families even in some churches, that if a 35 or 40-year-old Christian is still single, there must be a problem. Sadly, single Christians are often viewed as unfinished business. A single man might get passed over for a leadership post. A single woman is seen as less mature than a wife or a mom. It's assumed that the preferred state of all Christians should be marriage. What mother doesn't want to see her son or daughter happily married? What father doesn't expect to see his son settle down, find a wife, and start a life? This is what provokes the following kinds of comments at the family reunion. Oh, it's too bad you're not married yet. How is a nice girl like you still single? What that boy really needs is a good wife. Hey, are you dating anybody? I'm praying the Lord leads you to the right person. Often in a Christian family or in the church, 
the single member feels like he or she is on the outside looking in. They can feel ostracized and misunderstood. On occasion, single Christians get hurt and discouraged by insensitive remarks made by other Christians. They get victimized by a prejudice that is far more cultural than it is biblical. Jesus never said that if you commit your life to him, he would bless you with a spouse and children of your own. He never said that. Jesus promises us an abundant life, but nowhere does he specify it as a married life. The sheer numbers suggest that single should be the expected status for some Christians. There are many more women in the world than men. Sometimes a Christian's circumstances keeps him or her single. Sometimes singleness is a personal choice. But as the church, we need to recognize singleness as a legitimate status for our fellow Christians. If you've been here for the last three lessons in 1 Corinthians 7, you realize that Paul is pro-marriage. He has suggested that the natural course for young men and women is to mature, then marry, then make babies. And I'm serious when I say this. We need more babies, at least more babies growing up in Christian homes. But that's not to say that equally legitimate, an equally legitimate course for Christians is to forego marriage and stay singly devoted to Jesus. For Paul is also pro-single. In fact, today's text sanctions singleness and celibacy as legitimate choices for a Christian. Paul is also an advocate for single living. Now remember, 1 Corinthians chapters 7 through 16 is Paul's response to a series of questions asked of him by the Corinthians. The believers in Corinth weren't these sweet, goody-two-shoes kids who went to Christian school and who sowed their wild oats by toilet papering the youth pastor's house. No, you could call this church the wild bunch. I mean, they were former thieves and drunks and prostitutes and idolaters and sodomites. They were more accustomed to bar fights and one-night stands than they were church meetings. The believers in Corinth had zero Christian influence in their life other than Paul and his pals. But now they've been washed. Now they've been sanctified. Now they've been justified. Now they are new creations in Christ. They know it in their hearts. They just don't know how to live it out. And so they write to Paul with lots and lots of questions. And in chapter 7, he deals with those questions related to relationships, to marriage, divorce, and to singleness. So far, he's talked about sex in marriage. He's talked about reasons for divorce. He's talked about staying where we've been called. Now Paul answers their questions about faith and singleness. In verse 25, Paul begins, Now concerning virgins. The Greek word Paul uses is parthenos. It refers to a young woman who has never had sex with a man. Here Paul uses the term as a synonym for single since it was expected of single people in Paul's day to be virgins. Sadly, in our day, that is seldom the case. In 2003, a survey was conducted where men and women were asked the question, when does sex with your date become acceptable? 
A whopping 44% of men and 8% of women answered on the first, second, or third date. 20% of men and 18% of women answered after three or more dates. While 22% of men and 45% of women replied after knowing the person for an extended period of time. But a mere 5% of men and 15% of women replied only after getting married. And that helps us to explain the climate that single Christians find themselves in today. Today, sex is expected. The whole idea of reserving your sexuality for the person God chooses for you to marry is as archaic today as a rotary telephone or a vinyl record. Yet realize God has not changed His instructions. The Bible needs no upgrading. Understand, tomorrow God's not going to come out with Bible 2.0. God's truth is timeless. God still expects single and married Christians to remain sexually pure. If you're married, remain faithful to your spouse. If you're single, you may get married in the future, so remain faithful to your spouse in advance. Sex is sacred and special. It impacts us on the deepest level. Sexual activity creates spiritual bonds. Our fidelity protects our self-worth and our psyche. Paul wrote in chapter 6, verse 18, that sexual immorality is a sin against one's own person, against one's own body. It's spiritual suicide. Every time you give yourself away to be used up by another person, it eats away, it chips away at your self-worth. It diminishes your dignity. No wonder we're such an injured and hurting society. Obey God and you won't be disappointed. Ignore Him at your own peril. Recently, Anne Winnicombe, a former British politician, she wrote this. Let's face it, we are not a happier society as a result of the sexual liberalization. We have record rates of divorce Record rates of suicide, record rates of teenage pregnancy, record rates of youth crime, record rates of underage sex. We should invite people to recognize that the great experiment has failed. You cannot have happiness without restraint. Well, virgins or not, if Paul were writing today, he would begin verse 25, now concerning singles. And understand the revolutionary nature of this designation. In antiquity, almost everyone married. There were very few single people. Whereas today, singles make up more than half our population. Did you know that in 1950, 22% of Americans were single? Today, for the first time in American history, there are more singles than married. 50.2% or 124.6 million American adults are single today. Paul's words are as relevant today as they have been at any other time in our history. Well, Paul is writing to single Christians. Now concerning virgins, I have no commandment from the Lord, yet I give judgment as one whom the Lord in His mercy has made trustworthy. And we mentioned this earlier in chapter 7. Paul is being asked a question that the Gospels never addressed. That means that he can't quote the Lord chapter in verse. Jesus never addressed these issues. 
Paul isn't abdicating his authority to write Holy Spirit-inspired Scripture. He's just indicating that he's tackling a subject that Jesus never dealt with directly. And he assures the Corinthians that what he writes, though, can be trusted. God, in his mercy, has made Paul trustworthy. And so he continues, I suppose, therefore, that this is good because of the present distress, that it is good for a man to remain as he is. Are you bound to a wife? Do not seek to be loosed. Are you loosed from a wife? Do not seek a wife. Now notice, Paul doesn't exalt one state above the other. If you're married, stay so. It's good to be married. But here is the revolutionary thought. If you're single, stay so. For it is also good to be single. In the ancient world, no one would have ever made such a statement. Singleness would have been viewed as a curse to avoid, not a blessing to embrace. But for the rest of the chapter, Paul is going to extol the virtues of singleness. If you're a single Christian, these verses will provide you much hope and great help. And if you're married, you didn't make a mistake. We know from the entirety of the New Testament that Paul saw great value in marriage. But because of the events in Corinth, what he calls the present distress, he believes that marriage also has some disadvantages, and so he points them out. Now, what was this present distress? Well, we're not really sure. Historians tell us that there were famine conditions and food shortages in 50 AD in areas around Corinth. This would have created civil unrest, perhaps even riots in the streets. Some Bible expositors believe that Paul was anticipating a coming persecution. History confirms that in the decade following, fiery trials were orchestrated by Caesar Nero. It became difficult to be a Christian. Both scenarios, whether you're talking about famine conditions or persecution, make life hard on a Christian, especially one who was married and who had children. This is what Paul tells us in verse 28. He says, but even if you do marry, you have not sinned. And if a virgin marries, she has not sinned. Nevertheless, such will have trouble in the flesh, but I would spare you. Paul had much trouble in the flesh. Ladies, think of what it would have been like had you been alive at the time and married to the Apostle Paul. I mean, a day at the office for your hubby included preaching to an angry mob followed up by a potential stoning, maybe even a flogging. It was just as likely for him to end up in prison at the end of the day as it was for him to get home in time for dinner. And rather than take you on trips and get bumped up to first class, Paul's travels often ended in shipwreck. If Paul had been married, his wife would have been a wreck. Marriage is never easy. But for a caring lady to be married to a man like Paul, it would have been torture. Think of this imaginary Mrs. Paul. Think of her complaints. Honey, can you stop tracking blood in on the carpet? Sweetheart, would you talk to your angel about breaking you out of jail early so you can be at home for dinner on time? Baby, I was thinking of a ministry to moms, not mobs. Seriously, Voice of the Martyrs founder Richard Warmbrand once told the story of a fellow Christian pastor who was persecuted by the communists. 
They tortured this man in an attempt to get him to deny Christ. Instead, he stood firm in his faith until until they brought his 14-year-old son into the room. The torturers beat the, the boy unmercifully to an inch of his life. The poor pastor finally broke down and verbally renounced his faith in Christ. It was his son. What was he to do? We think of this as a theoretical situation we hope we never face. But these are the issues facing believers today in Iraq and in Syria and in Egypt and in the Sudan and in Afghanistan and in Indonesia. This is their daily reality. Christians today are being beheaded by ISIS. And worse, their wives and daughters are being raped and sold as sex slaves. It's been noted A man who is a hero himself is a coward when he thinks of his wife and children. A married man is vulnerable in a way that he wouldn't be if he was single. It was due to this present distress that Paul told the Corinthians that they're better off not marrying. He instructs them, if you're married, stay married, but then pray for protection and for God's grace. But if you're not married, consider it a blessing, for you have a lesser liability. But this present distress was not the only issue that concerned Paul. In verse 29, he says that another reason not to marry is we're running out of time. He says, but this I say, brethren, the time is short. So that from now on, even those who have wives should be as though they had none. Those who weep as though they did not weep. Those who rejoice as though they did not rejoice. Those who buy as though they did not possess. And those who use this world as not misusing it, for the form of this world is passing away. Paul contends that the time is short. Now, obviously, he believed that Jesus was coming at any moment. And every generation of believers since the first century onward should live their lives on earth under this assumption. Prophetically speaking, nothing needs to happen before Jesus returns as a thief in the night to whisk away his church. Never forget, our snatching away is imminent. It can happen at any moment, even today. And this is how Paul lived his life. He streamlined his concerns so that his only care was Christ and people. And he encourages married Christians to do the same. He says those who have wives should be as though they had none. Some of you guys read that verse and you think, free at last. I have found my favorite verse. I'm playing golf every day this week and going deer hunting next weekend. Whoa now. Hold your horses, big fella. That's not what it means. Paul is in no way suggesting that a married person can abandon their family and their marital responsibilities. You know, I've known people, I've known even some pastors who use their commitment to Christ as an excuse for neglecting their families. This is not what Paul is advocating here. And perhaps more so, I've seen married people use their marriage and family as an excuse for neglecting their commitment to God and to their church. Seems young couples can get so wrapped up in themselves and in their kids and in all their kids do that they put their church and their service to God on the back burner. Paul says, don't do that. 
If you're married, live as if you have a wife, live as though you had none. Still be committed to Christ. Don't let your family come between you and your service for God. We need to think about it. Do we really? Do we really think that getting a child to a 12-year-old baseball game is more important than our church and the ministry that God has called us to? What are we teaching our kids about the proper priorities? Kathy and I, we raised four kids, and we gave them tons of opportunities. But there were limits. God came first. Church was a given in our home, and not because I was the pastor. We honored God with our weekly worship. Our kids knew that their family was part of something greater than themselves. The Adams family exists to serve God. God doesn't exist just to better our family. Christians should never stop loving and serving our spouse and kids, but neither should we worship them. You know, you can turn your family into an idol. I know some parents who worship their kids. Some Christian couples are so busy providing for each other and their children that they never make a sacrifice for anybody else. Some Christians focus on the family too much. I've witnessed couples who were dating while attending our church, perhaps even met at our church. But the moment they married, we never saw them again. Or once their kids started signing up for stuff, they disappeared. The point of marriage is to serve the Lord together. The goal of every family should be to glorify God. And here Paul is saying, when it comes to serving God, believers who have a family shouldn't be any less diligent toward the things of God than the believer who doesn't. Paul goes on to say, in that same way that you shouldn't let your life be dominated by family concerns, neither should you get bogged down by emotions. He says those who weep should be as though they did not weep, and those who rejoice as though they did not rejoice. Emotions can overwhelm us. Sorrow, even gladness, can bog us down. In life, we go through seasons of intense emotions that either shut down our caring or snuff out our usefulness. Christians can get distracted and bogged down by our moods and our feelings and even some depression. In 2013, Nick Saban and his Alabama football... I hate using this guy as an illustration, but it just works. It just works. Nick Saban in Alabama, they beat Notre Dame 42-14 to for the national title. It was Alabama's second national championship in as many seasons. When the game was over, sportscaster Tom Rinaldi stuck a microphone right in Nick's face. And he asked the coach how long he planned to enjoy this victory. Saban said, Well, two days, and we're going to start on next year. We've got a 24-hour rule around here, but I'm proud of these guys, man. I'm happy for them. Given back-to-back national championships? How nice is it for old Coach Nick to stretch his one-day rule and actually give his boys 48 hours to enjoy their victory? What a softy! Yet Paul had the same down-to-business attitude towards serving God. When he won victories, Paul gave himself a little time to revel in them, but he would agree with the quote, we'll have all eternity to celebrate our victories, but just a few short days to win them. Paul didn't get bogged down in his victories. Neither did he get overwhelmed by his defeats. He felt the same way about his sorrows. 
He had no time to refill his victory mug, and he had no time to cry over spilt milk. Paul would tell you, dry your tears. Stop your cheers. The battle isn't over. There's more to be done. And Paul wasn't about to let his zeal get snuffed out by material stuff. Notice what he adds. He says, and those who buy should be as though they did not possess. Paul would tell you possessions are fine just as long as they don't possess you. Everybody needs some stuff to get by in this life. You probably need a car and a house and a refrigerator maybe. Just don't fall in love with your fridge. Just don't spend endless hours sitting there looking at your refrigerator. Maybe a better illustration would be a TV. But Paul's point is that time is short, so use it wisely. Have you seen the ticker watch? After inputting your data, it estimates your life expectancy. So that whenever you check to see what time it is, it reminds you of how many years and months and days and hours and minutes and seconds you have left to live. Here's the ticker motto. Every moment counts. You'd think a constant reminder of your demise would get depressing. But its inventor, Frederick Colton, who, by the way, was once a grave digger, he calls it the happiness watch. He believes that watching your life tick tick away should remind you to enjoy and to savor every single second you've been given. I believe the Apostle Paul would have probably worn a ticker. And then he writes in verse 32, But I want you to be without care. For he who is unmarried cares for the things of the Lord, how he may please the Lord. But he who is married cares about the things of the world, how he may please his wife. In other words, a single person is free from the present distress, but he's also free from earthly distractions, even family distractions. Think back. Before Tiger Woods was married, think of Tiger prior to his infamous womanizing, back before that. Think of Tiger Woods when we all just thought of the young man as a truly great golfer. Well, in 2002, I read an interview with Tiger's dad, Earl Woods, about his son's abilities, about his prospects for success in golf. Earl made what was at the time a controversial statement. He commented, He says, I don't see Tiger marrying before 30, if then, because he has a lot to accomplish in the game of golf. And let's face it, a wife can sometimes be a deterrent to a good game of golf. The level Tiger's at, the finite little problems like that would destroy him. Well, I hate to say it, but Daddy Earl was right. Tiger's sin became public knowledge, his marriage unraveled, and he's never been the same golfer since. As every, married man, as every married man who enjoys a game of golf more than checking off lists on his honeydew list will tell you, a wife can sometimes be a deterrent to a good game of golf. Here, old Earl sounds like the Apostle Paul. A married man has a tough time concentrating. He has a tough time keeping his focus on God or on his golf game. Because he's also attending to the needs of his wife and his kids. If you've heard the story before, just ignore it. But, but it fits the context here. I need to tell it again. 
I was once officiating a wedding. It was a big ceremony. Place was packed. I was in this very spot I'm standing in now. The sanctuary was full of people, packed to the gills. The couple who was getting married had made it to the altar. And that's when yours truly opened his mouth. <coughs> Old Pastor Sandy. He was supposed to say, just as the wife compliments her husband. But those were not the words that came out of his mouth. Instead, I said, just as the wife complicates the husband. <laughs> hey, condemn me for inappropriate timing, but not for untruthfulness. For here, Paul agrees, marriage will complicate a man's life. I mean, when a man gets married, suddenly he has double the trouble. Two sets of car repairs. Two tanks to fill up. Two insurance premiums to pay. Two birthdays to remember. Two opinions to sort through. Two demands on his time. Trust me, if I wasn't married, I would never hang Christmas lights. <laughs> Read my lips. Never. Think of the money I would save not writing checks to the nail gallery. I would never have to purchase another tube of lipstick or have to call home when I was running late. I could spend all my time serving the Lord and witnessing to people on the golf course if I wanted. <laughs> These last few days, Kathy went to Columbus to see Natalie and the grandbabies. and She was been gone for the last three days. She just got back this morning. But I got to say, while she was gone, I got so much work done. I got a ton of work done. On top of that, I watched the Hawks and I played a round of golf. I don't know what it is, but without a wife around, my life becomes more focused, more streamlined. I get more done. You know, I park in Kathy's spot, which is about, I don't have to walk 15 minutes to get to the house. I park in her spot. It's right there next to the, to the house. While she's gone, I don't have to shave. I don't have to brush my teeth. I don't bathe. I certainly don't do any dishes. I work in the living room. Now, don't get me wrong. After a few days, I start to miss her. I want her back. My focus isn't worth her absence. But when she's gone, it always reminds me just how much a married man cares for the things of this world. You know, before I got married, I thought that I was an unselfish guy. I'd go out on a date. I'd be on my best behavior. I'd put my best unselfish foot forward. Then I'd come home and I'd unwind exactly the way I wanted for as long as I wanted. Then I got married. And I immediately realized this was the date that would never end. <laughs> I was always expected to be on my best behavior. I never got to fully unwind. I started to learn what it meant to really be unselfish. And then one kid came along. And then another. Make it three, even four. And with each kid, my unselfishness stretched. My capacity for unselfishness increased. I've learned how true it is. He who is married cares about the things of the world, how he may please his wife. That's a good thing. Marriage teaches selfish people how to please others, but it also restricts a person's spontaneity and autonomy and their freedom. Verse 34 puts it, there is a difference 
between a wife and a virgin, or that is a single person. The unmarried woman cares about the things of the Lord. She may be holy, both in body and in spirit. She doesn't have a husband to worry about. This gobbles up a lot of her time, having to deal with this man every day. A single gal doesn't have to follow a husband. She's free to serve the Lord. She's just to be holy to the Lord in body and in spirit. I mean, she wants to wear sweats around the house. She wears. She doesn't worry about getting spruced up or look nice for her husband. She doesn't have to worry about any of that. She can wear grungies all the time. Never had to do her hair. She, she, she has a little bit more freedom. She's not worried about what the man might think of her, his, her appearance, nor about ministering to his fleshly needs. Her focus is on the Lord, his will for her life. She's just free to be devoted to the Lord. There's a lot of freedom there. Think about it. A married woman is, in, is like she's in a three-legged race with a clumsy husband who's stepping on her toes all the time, while a single lady's life is a beautiful dance with Jesus himself. In contrast to the bliss of singleness, Paul sums up the life of a missus. But she who is married cares about the things of the world, how she may please her husband. I mean, a wife's chief concern is pleasing her husband. And and I'm sure every husband here this morning would testify that, yeah, that's my wife's big concern. She's She's always worried about how she can please me. That's, 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 yeah, yeah. Yeah. Might be what it seems. Well, I'm sure that's the idea. Well, then Paul adds, verse 35, and this, the this being the legitimacy of singleness, he says, I say for your own profit, not that I may put a leash on you, but for what is proper and that you may serve the Lord without distraction. Now, in Ephesians chapter 5, Paul depicts marriage as a beautiful love story. He gets quite romantic. Here, though, Paul isn't quite as romantic. If you're single, beware. If you choose to marry, just know what you're getting into. But in verse 35, Paul's picture of marriage is not so flattering. He says, marriage is a leash. It's a dog collar that curtails your freedom. Now that's a bit harsh, but that's his point. Marriage is going to limit a person's autonomy. A married person is accountable for his time and his whereabouts and his behavior and his attitude, not just to God, but to another human being. Married people need to realize this. I know guys that resent this. No, this is what you signed up for. This is what marriage is about. There's a reason we call marriage getting hitched. As one author puts it, I didn't know what happiness was until I got married, but by then it was too late. It's just a joke. It's just a joke. Hey, I am very happily married. I have a wife who trusts me, who lets me Follow the Lord and even play golf from time to time. But I realize that marriage is a trade-off. Kathy and I have swapped some freedom and independence for some trust and some companionship. I'm not as free as I would be if I were single, and that is appropriate. I can't just up and take a job in another state for a few months. I can't stay out all night without explaining why. 
I can't just take money out of the account and spend it on myself or be late without a notification of some sort. Even my desires to serve the Lord have to be balanced with the needs of my family. Neither spouse should act independently of the other. Married folks are no longer playing singles, but doubles. We're a team. If you ever played tennis, you know the difference between singles and doubles. In doubles tennis, you don't have to run as much. That's a good thing. You can cover more of the court. There's more strategy in the doubles game. But I always hated playing doubles. There's some disadvantages to playing doubles. Why should I be penalized for my partner's mistakes? And when you have a partner, you got to learn to think alike and cooperate and work together. It's just a lot simpler. It's just less worries playing singles. This is what Paul is saying about marriage. We're all Christians. We are tennis players, so to speak. We're called to serve. We all start with love. We're all playing tennis, but has God called you to be a singles player or a doubles player? Both have their advantages and their disadvantages. Well, Paul has more questions to answer in verse 36. Here he seems to no longer be addressing his comments to the virgin or to the single person, but to the virgin's father. He says, but if any man thinks he is behaving improperly toward his virgin, if she is past the flower of youth, and thus it must be, let him do what he wishes. He does not sin, let them marry. Now in ancient culture, in fact, even in many non-Western cultures today, the father or the patriarch of the family had a say in the marriage of his children. Now when I was young, when I was a single man, This was a concept that I could never wrap my brain around. I thought this was so strange. I mean, I would never want my parents telling me who and when I should marry. Well, fast forward a little little bit. After raising four kids, I've come to realize this idea is not as preposterous to me as it once seemed. (laughs) Thankfully, my three married kids have chosen wisely. But after a couple of near misses... I now understand why parents were once involved. The ancients were a lot smarter than we gave them credit for. In Corinth, it was a father who chose his daughter's mate and then set the date. And here Paul is saying to the dads, if your princess is aging, if her best years are fleeting, if you seem to be holding her back and she wants to marry, well then let her. There's nothing wrong with a gal getting married. He does not sin. Let them marry. Verse 37. Nevertheless, he who stands steadfast in his heart, having no necessity, but has power over his own will, and has so determined in his heart that he will keep his virgin, does well. So then, he who gives her in marriage does well, but he who does not give her in marriage does better. Again, Paul is sticking to the theme he's been trumpeting throughout this passage. Because of the present distress, because of the distracting cares of marriage, if a person has the self-control, if they have the God-given calling to fly solo and to be singly devoted to Jesus, then great. They're better off being unmarried. But if they choose to be married, it's not a sin. Let them marry. Did you hear about the wedding at the bride's house? It started 
right at 6.45. But the host forgot one important detail. For just as the pastor popped the question, do you take this man to be your lawfully wedded husband? The clock right above the wedding party, a little bird slid from the mouth of the clock just overhead of the bride and groom and sounded cuckoo, cuckoo, seven hilarious cuckoos. And that sums up Paul's take on marriage right there. If you're not called to marriage, if you don't need it, then why be cuckoo and forego your freedom? Serve God without distractions. Just be single for the Savior. It's great. In conclusion, Paul answers a last question, verses 39 to 40 posed by the Corinthians, that obviously dealt with singles who were formerly married but were now widows or widowers. He states, A wife is bound by law as long as her husband lives. But if her husband dies, she is at liberty to be married to whom she wishes, only in the Lord. A husband's death frees his wife from any marital obligations. If your spouse dies, you're free from any obligation to that person. You're free to remarry, and it can be a good thing, as long as it's in the Lord, which means to another Christian. That's the one stipulation. And yet even here, Paul adds a caveat. He says, but she is happier if she remains as she is, according to my judgment, and I think I also have the Spirit of God. Once more, for reasons stated earlier, unless God has called her to remarry, then she might just be happier single. Like the credit card, singleness has its privileges. God calls some of us to be single. He calls some of us to marry. Our job is to bloom where we've been planted. Whatever your status, do all that you do to the glory of God.